NAIDOC Week, which in 2020 runs from the 8th to the 15th of November, is an important celebration for all Australians. In part, it's a reminder that our nation's story didn't begin with European contact in the 16 and 1700s. It goes back more than 65,000 years. But NAIDOC Week is more than just a reminder about history. It's also an opportunity to celebrate and think about the future. Hello, I'm Nick Basto, and today on Public Sector Perspectives, we use NAIDOC Week 2020 to look at some of the challenges that COVID-19 has created for Aboriginal communities in Victoria, and how Aboriginal community-controlled organisations have helped to prevent the spread of a disease that's particularly dangerous for at-risk communities. But at the same time as they're working to keep their communities safe, Victorian Aboriginal communities are also taking part in an extraordinary and unique process in terms of modern Australian political history. The development of a formal treaty between the Victorian Government and Aboriginal people in Victoria. To help us understand what's happened to Aboriginal people in Victoria during the COVID-19 crisis and how you keep a complex treaty process going during a once-in-a-hundred-year pandemic, I spoke to Ellie Patira, Executive Director in the Social Policy Group in the Department of Premier and Cabinet. Ellie Patira is an Indigenous woman with links to Gunai country in Gippsland and the Napui people, whose lands are in the northern part of the North Island of New Zealand. Her position in the Victorian Public Service means that she has responsibility for the Treaty Branch in Aboriginal Affairs and for the Aboriginal COVID-19 Task Force. Despite some big improvements, there's still a well-documented gap in health outcomes between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people, meaning that diseases like COVID-19 can be particularly dangerous. But this is a story about success. So let's go back to March 2020, when Ellie Batira first started to recognise the real scale of the coming COVID crisis. It was almost a bit of an iterative process, if you like. I think um, it was something, an issue that was sort of um, brought to our attention and, and then over time um, it became apparent that it, it, was, um, it was going to have an impact in Australia and in Victoria. I think the moment for me when I perhaps realised was in some ways um, a little later perhaps than um, than when it was first raised in discussion and I think it was at the point in time where we were starting to contemplate what remote working might look like for the public service as a whole um, and I um, remember really being struck by how profound that was at that point in time, the idea that we would move a workforce um, to, to work remotely from home. Um, and so I, I was at work at, at that period of time and in terms of, um, you know, what my thinking was, um, I think it was obviously in my role with oversight of Aboriginal affairs policy in particular, um, you know, I was it, it was clear very early on that Aboriginal communities in Victoria were um, at risk, I suppose, of being disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. Yeah. And I mean that not only from a from a health perspective, but also in terms of some of the social and economic implications yeah. that we could see um, coming into place. And so I think one thing we were really conscious of, of is we knew that there um, were a lot of health 
issues in in um, our Aboriginal communities, particularly pre-existing medical conditions and comorbidities as well, that really put Aboriginal people at increased risk in the event that they were to uh, contract COVID-19. Um, and we also knew there were some really, um, really particular um, realities for Aboriginal um, households, you know, a lot of overcrowding uh, and a lot of multi-generational living arrangements. And so um, I think our, our first, uh, my first concerns were to the community and how it was that we would uh, look to support the community mm-hmm. through COVID-19. Are we in a position yet to see whether there have been particular health impacts on Aboriginal people? I, I think that's um, that's what's particularly interesting if we look f- first and foremost at the sort of public health impacts. There's actually a really incredible story in terms of COVID-19 transition rates, uh, tra- transmission rates within Aboriginal communities in Victoria because what we've actually seen is um, incredibly low rates mm. of infection amongst Aboriginal Victorians um, and not just amongst um, the general Aboriginal uh, communities, but also if we look at Aboriginal health professionals and frontline workers, mm. we've also seen disproportionately or uh, low rates of infection amongst those yeah. frontline workers as well. And I think this is an incredible story because I think it really is a testament, uh, I believe, to the um, forethoughtness and the quick work and the capacity of the Aboriginal community controlled sector um, to really lead and drive um, Aboriginal responses to the pandemic and really um, provide very quick wraparound supports uh, Mm. to the Aboriginal community. And so um, that has been a really incredible positive impact. Um, Again, a testament to the Aboriginal community, we were able to pull together back in March, so very early on, in the sort of COVID-19 trajectory, Uh, there was an Aboriginal community task force um, that was put together really quickly to really try and um, make sure that as we were responding across the Victorian government to the pandemic, we had a really um, clear mind and and continued to drive self-determining responses. Um, And so that task force brought together um, leaders from across community uh, and from representatives from a range of Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, um, working closely with um, some of the key decision-makers across government as well, so um, deputy secretaries and executive directors with yeah. uh, responsibility for areas that we would expect to see impact. So, you know, um, what we know is that there was existing over-representation in areas such as family violence mm. and child protection, homelessness, and um, and the Aboriginal community-controlled sector was um, very concerned to make sure that this um, over-representation didn't increase yeah. um, during coronavirus. And so that task force really um, pulled, mobilised incredibly quickly to look at really important um, protective actions, mm-hmm. COVID-19 um, messaging, public health messaging, um, making sure that there was culturally safe testing available and culturally safe contact tracing um, capacity. Yeah. And we also saw some really great Aboriginal-specific responses. So mm. now that we're turning our mind um, to what are some of the impacts that we're seeing, um, 
we've actually seen, I think, you know, there's no surprise what what the the focus will be in terms of recovery. Um, I think mental health and social emotional wellbeing um, are, are definitely um, an area where Aboriginal communities um, have been impacted. Um, Aboriginal people, we're a kinship people. Connection to culture and country are, you know, such important yeah. protective factors and, um you know, restrictions from family and from practising culture and mm. from um, connecting to country, they've all um, certainly had their toil, um, particularly on um, mental health and social yeah. and emotional wellbeing. So um, that's a, a real area of focus. And um, I think uh, that will drive a lot of a lot of the um, response work from the task force as we, as we move forward. And um, I think we've been quite lucky in 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 that the task force was able to recognize really quickly the importance of having flexible funding available so that the community could lead and drive responses that were place-based and appropriate um having regard to local factors and so that um that funding is in place and is being accessed now to really drive um one to identify local impacts and and to be able to drive some um local responses as well um Perhaps the one other area worth raising, and it's, again, no surprise, is um, the economic impacts for Aboriginal yeah. um, people. Um, you know, going into the pandemic, Aboriginal Victorians have a low... Uh, if we talk about household median income, it is it is lower. We also know that because of, um, you know, a historic economic exclusion, there's not that level of um, intergenerational wealth, if you like, that creates yeah. that kind of... Um, the kind of financial sort of support that um, one might sort of lean into if yeah. they find themselves um, struggling economically um, during something like COVID-19. And we also know if, if you look at the kind of um, workforces that were particularly impacted by COVID-19, so hospitality is a really great yeah. example, we know that our um, Aboriginal people... Um, service um, and underemployed in those particular workforces. And so we know there's some, um, there'll be likely fallout from that that we yeah. are um, needing to address as well. Because of your position in uh, DPC, you've got, an, I suppose, a, a perspective on how public administration operates as a whole. We're recording this case, we're recording this discussion in early November when we've had a few very, very welcome days of no new cases of COVID. It's clearly way too early to say we're over it, over the problem. But what have the last eight months taught you about the strengths and weaknesses of how our public health system works? I suppose I've looked at it more broadly than just the public health system to really look at the public sector response. Um, And I think what I have seen is... um, incredibly i'm incredibly proud to be a public servant um following the last sort of eight month period what i've seen is um really capable people working incredibly hard hours that um are beyond comprehension i think if you'd said to me you know um if you'd said to me eight months ago that people could work four times as hard as they already were i would have said that was impossible um that is what we have seen and i think um if i speak from um my own branch's perspective, so Aboriginal Affairs policy, um, what we saw was 
a real willingness to take on board that COVID-19 work and to really um, look at um, what was needed to make sure that the public and, in our case, Aboriginal communities were supported through the pandemic. And, um, you know, from a Aboriginal affairs policy perspective, you know, there was a need to um, quickly mobilise and and resource a, a secretariat to support a community task force to do some of that work to make sure that there was culturally appropriate testing and contact tracing and support services available and emergency relief. And, um, and that required people to work around the clock to yeah. make sure that, that happened. Um, to stand up a you know a ten million dollar fund within a, a week to support community response efforts. Um, yep. So what what I think I've I would say I've seen is um, the very best of the public service in terms of innovation, in terms of hard work, in terms of a real focus on the public good, um, and and also I suppose a, a real collaborative approach across mm. departments. I think which is what's yep. really exciting. Um, I think we've got stronger relationships than we've ever had before. And we can, we've also seen um, what can be done in those kind of um, trying circumstances. So I feel that there's a lot of, um, well, there's, you know, so, some tiredness. There's a lot of hope, I think, for what the next year brings and what's possible. Let's talk about that the next year then, because... Uh, back in January, in the pre-COVID days, there were a range of very important policy changes, challenges facing Victoria. Those issues, of course, haven't gone away. Um, and one of them was Victoria's path towards a treaty with Aboriginal people. You've got oversight over the treaty process. And in just a moment, we'll, let's talk about the impact of COVID, that COVID's had on that work um, and that process. But first, let's just pause just for a second, just to recover why it is important that Victoria as a state develops a treaty with an Aboriginal people. In, in my view, treaty is absolutely essential in um, a, a post-settler world. Um, mm. We Australia is one of the only Commonwealth countries not to have treated with its First Nations people. Yeah. Um I, I think that treaty is what is needed to um, address our past, to acknowledge our past, um, and to really develop a shared understanding and a shared identity and a shared future mm. for all Victorians. And I think um, treaty offers the opportunity really for a more just Victoria, yeah. um, one in which, um, we, as I said, we share have a shared a shared history, we understand and celebrate Aboriginal culture because there's so much to celebrate mm. and there's so much to be proud of. Yeah. And and we walk side by side into the future and, and um, yeah, an absolutely fast, fantastic opportunity from that mm. perspective. COVID's obviously diverted an enormous amount of government's focus. And for communities, it's also created some, you know, some enormous imperatives because people have got to stay safe and they've got to stay healthy and make financial ends meet. So it must be hard to keep sort of engagement in a treaty process at this time. Where are we now with the treaty process in Victoria and what are the next steps that are going to happen? We've been on this pathway to treaty in Victoria really since um, 2016 with uh, quite a bit of work in the early days to um, understand what Aboriginal community aspiration was around treaty. Um, we saw the first um, legislation in Australia being passed in the Victorian mm -hmm. Parliament to set out a pathway to treaty in Victoria. 
Uh, we saw the establishment of an independent treaty advancement commissioner in Victoria, yeah. uh, really to look at well, what does a representative Aboriginal body look like for yeah. Victoria and, and the commissioner was charged with uh, coming up with an appropriate representative model. That model um, was the First People's Assembly and right. the First People's Assembly um, held democratic uh, elections uh, in uh, the latter half of 2019 and uh, following those elections uh, was established as the first Aboriginal representative body uh, in December of last year. And so as we moved into COVID, we had a, a newly established uh, First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, um, really meeting and coming together for the first time and, and coming um, to grips with what its role is. And its role is um, really quite a simple one. It's to work with government, to negotiate with government, to develop um, and to agree a number of uh, treaty elements is what we refer to them as, which are the architecture to support mm. future treaty negotiations. Yeah. So put very simply, um, the task at hand is to agree a treaty negotiation framework, which I yeah. like to say are the, the rules about uh, and the processes about how you negotiate a treaty. A uh, treaty authority, which will be akin to an independent umpire between the state and Aboriginal negotiating parties as well as a self-determination fund to ensure that Aboriginal negotiating parties have independent funding available to be able to support their treaty negotiations. Yeah. And so as we um, as COVID really um, started to impact in March of this year, um, we had really got to a point where um, we were just about to embark on negotiations between... Uh, the state and the assembly um, to design these these elements, as I've just described, and it's a real testament to the assembly that we continued that work and have continued that work through yeah. until now, um, and have continued to ha have commenced negotiations on on a number of fronts. It's important to know that the assembly members, the thirty two members of of the assembly, um, they all or the majority hold down other jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're working from home during yeah. COVID. They um, are looking after family and they continue to really um, to really be invested in this work to really grapple with some of these really difficult issues um, that they have to in designing these treaty elements. And um, I think what we've seen is a, a real... Um, Real ingenuity, I think, in being able to pivot very quickly um, as we move into a sort of digital world um, mm. to to be able to continue to meet. So the, the Assembly has met. It's established a number of subcommittees and in, in many respects its work um, has continued unaffected. Mm. There has almost been, I think, an opportunity gain um, during COVID-19, which is looking at different ways to engage with our diverse communities. Yeah. Um, and what we've actually seen is in many respects, it's um, it's easier to get together yeah. a meeting of diverse voices um, yeah. when everyone can do that from the comfort of their home. So I feel yeah. that the Assembly has really um, risen to that challenge, has continued to engage on digital platforms, has looked at ways to engage elders, um, has... Um, been supported by the Victorian government to make sure that it's got the right IT infrastructure in place to do that well, and um, and 
as I said, um, we are deep in negotiations on a number of um, of those elements, mm. and we've also had um, great success in in so far as the assembly uh, passed a resolution seeking uh, the establishment of a truth and justice process mm. uh, in Victoria. That was uh, an early call from the assembly, recognising that uh, having a having truth and an understanding, a shared understanding of Victoria's history is absolutely essential to understanding uh, the importance of treaty uh, for all Victorians. And um, and the fact that the Victorian government has now committed to that truth and justice process, terms of reference are well underway in terms of development with the Assembly. Um, they really are uh, well-placed and have not have not missed a beat mm. in this uh, COVID environment. What do you think is the biggest misconception that non-Aboriginal people have about the treaty process? I think for me, um, one of the concerns I've always had is uh, an idea that there is a single Aboriginal voice. Yeah. Uh, Aboriginal people, Aboriginal communities are as diverse in their opinions as we mm-hmm. would expect the broader Victorian yeah. community yeah. to be. We don't... Um, all see eye to eye, nor should we have to. We, yeah. um, we, we have we have a range of different views, and I think what the assembly offers is an opportunity to bring together rep- representatives from across uh, Victoria's Aboriginal communities with a range of different views on what a future looks like. Yeah. And the challenge for the assembly, I think, is um, to best reflect that breadth of views in the work that it does as mm. it moves forward. And I think that's a lesson for us all: is you know a healthy um, a healthy treaty process is one in which um, one in which we do have debate. It's one in which we um, really grapple with um, some of these different views and um, seek to um, move forward in a way that best accommodates those views. We're recording this episode uh, for NAIDOC Week 2020, which runs from the 8th to the 15th of November. And the theme for this year's NAIDOC Week is Always Was, Always Will Be, which is a recognition that First Nations people have occupied and cared for this continent for over 65,000 years, which is an extraordinary history. Your own connection to Gunai country in Victoria, Napui country in New Zealand, gives you a a perspective on the importance of these sort of celebrations. What's one thing you hope that more public servants do during NAIDOC Week 2020? I think from my perspective, what I really hope is that um, all public servants, and in fact all Victorians, all Australians, um, take the opportunity to celebrate uh, the history, the culture and the achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across um, across our continent. I think what is so exciting as we move into a treaty space and as we start to look at truth and justice is we see this profound, um, this profound Aboriginal history um, that has, as you said, um, has has really been a, a sixty five thousand year plus uh, history, and when if we look at that Aboriginal history as everybody's history, mm. um, there is just so much to be proud of and so much to celebrate. Mm. And NAIDOC Week is such a joyous week, I think, for the Aboriginal community because it's an opportunity um, to come together and and to celebrate. Um, all that is so wonderful um, about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. Um, and I think, it, you know, NAIDOC has its roots in um, in in, some, in the sort of advocacy and the protest and um, mm. the history um, 
of of Aboriginal rights in both Victoria and Australia. Um, and I think that as it's evolved, you know, it's it's moved into this sort of place of of, of also celebrating and, and bringing along with it you know, government agencies, schools, local councils, workplace. And I, um, I encourage all people um, to really try and, um, you know, have a look around and, and, and understand um, what, uh, who the traditional owners are of your area, um, what the Aboriginal culture and the history is. Um, that is a that is a history and a culture that um, that is all of ours um, to share and to celebrate. Ellie Petura, thanks so much for being part of Public Sector Perspectives. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. That brings us to the end of Public Sector Perspectives for this week. Public Sector Perspectives is produced for IPA Victoria, and you can get in touch with us via the IPA Victoria website. If you'd like to find out more about NAIDOC Week events that are happening near you or online, then there are links in the show notes to calendars of events as well as the great history of NAIDOC itself. Extra special thanks this week to the amazing Suzanne Howes for her help with this recording. I'm Nick Bastow and thanks for listening.